really quiet, really fast. What happened? You guys were doing so well. I'm not even in the right chapter of the Bible up here. Hey, uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. Uh, so just raise your hand and we'll get some passed out to you. And as we say every week, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we would love to give you one and have you take that home with you and read it and get to know the author of it. Amen. Amen. Just a couple quick things. Ladies, we hope that you will all hang out afterward today. you got to eat lunch somewhere, right? It might as well be here and enjoy some fellowship. And uh, as you exit today, just head left and then another left through the little black gate. And then right behind us is the fellowship hall and you will enjoy your time back there. I'm not sure what we're having, but it's probably fabulous. What is it? Oh. Fantastic. So head on back there, ladies. And guys, if you can join us this Saturday, it's kind of short notice, I know. Uh, we didn't do the best job in getting the word out to you, but if you can come with us this Saturday, it's going to be a neat time. Pastor Sandy Adams from uh, Georgia and then Pastor Nate Holdridge from Calvary Chapel Monterey are both going to be out to minister the word to us. So it'll be a great time. We'll leave early from the church office. If you want to go up with us in the van, we would love to have you. You can certainly go on your own, but uh, any way you get there, we'd love to have you there. So all of that being said, turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to finish off the chapter this morning. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26. And I would imagine that most of us here um, don't like making major life decisions. Those, you know, where will I live and when should we move and, you know, what will we do for work and how long should I do what I'm doing at this place that I'm currently doing it and you know, that big question, who am I going to spend the rest of my life with? And I remember when I was pastoring at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz, I pastored the college group for over 10 years. And those questions, though they're questions that are with all of us all the time through all of our lives, they seem to be especially challenging during that season of life. And I have to say, I remember these poor young adults would agonize over all of these things as they were just kind of launching out and getting themselves established. And I, I think as we approach this second half of Acts chapter 1, for the disciples, who are soon to be apostles, they find themselves in precisely the same place, looking at each other, wondering, what in the world do we do next? You remember Jesus had ascended spectacularly, you know, supernaturally, leaving them for real this time. But remember, he left them with this promise that he would somehow continue to be with them as they went out. And what we're going to see this morning in what is a really unique little section of the scripture, we're going to see some of the things that the disciples did, and more importantly, some of the things that the Lord Jesus did to guide and to direct them in their very first steps, in their very first new days in this new life that they were living. And I think what we're going to see is a number of different ways. In fact, I counted 10 of them, if you like lists. We're going to see 10 different things that the Lord did to help to prepare them and the same things that he'll do to help to prepare us as we seek to know what his will is when we're wondering what in the world do we do next. So let's pray and dive in. Uh, I'm looking forward to this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we do thank you for the direction that you give us, Lord. You don't just 
save us and then, and then uh, sort of abandon us to do what we will, Lord, but you, you want to work with us and minister to us and guide and direct us in those things that we would do, Lord, that would please you. And so we pray that you would be our teacher this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would minister these things to our hearts. Give us ears to hear, Lord, what he would say to your church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember, when we last left off, moments before that magnificent ascension into heaven, Jesus had just told the disciples in verse 4, he said, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And what we read next in verse 12 is that then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So the very first thing we notice is that the disciples did just what Jesus told them to do. So right off the bat, this is notable obedience on the part of the disciples. And as simple as it sounds, I think they deserve at least a little bit of a shout out here. Right? Even though the Lord Jesus wasn't physically with them any longer, they obeyed his words to them, and they made that short little walk. It would have been just about a half a mile, which was the distance that a, a, an observant Jew could walk on the Sabbath day. But they made that journey back into the city from where they were up there on the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem's walls. Luke, Luke chapter 24 tells us that they went with great joy. And of course, obedience brings us great joy. And I think that they were anxious for what the Lord had in store for them. And yet, they obeyed his command to return and to simply wait. Which is so often, isn't that just the absolute hardest thing for us to do? Verse 13 says that when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So very likely, they returned right to the same room where they had just had the Last Supper with Jesus before his death. So we have this small group of faithful followers. They immediately start seeking after the Lord, waiting on him. And notice that the Spirit of God through Luke specifically here lists each of the individuals who were there. This is what will be the fourth and the last complete recorded list of the names of the disciples. And of course, as we count them, we can count there are only 11 because of course Judas Iscariot is noticeably not there. But notice also Jesus' brothers, it says, are there. This would be James and Jude, technically his half-brothers, right? But we know that they didn't believe in their brother Jesus during his lifetime, and yet apparently after an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, they were changed into followers. We see the faithful women who'd been with Jesus during so much of his ministry. They were there once again, as it says was Mary, his mother. Now think about Mary. Can you even imagine what she must have been feeling right about now? Imagine what's happened to her in the last 
40-odd days. Her son, the Messiah, right, brutally beaten, crucified, but then resurrected. And now moments ago, ascended into heaven. For Mary personally, her reputation had finally been cleared. It was now obvious to everyone that Jesus was indeed the Son of God and that he was virgin-born, just as she had claimed that he was. And yet, interestingly, this is the first and the last time that Mary is seen in the book of Acts. In fact, it's the last mention of Mary by name in the New Testament. And what we see is that from this time, she just passes completely out of sight. And here we see her taking her place with the rest of God's people as they waited there for the promise of the Father and for the spread of the gospel to begin. And we need to note this, unfortunately, because there are parts of the church today who have wandered very far from this truth. Parts of the church today have exalted Mary to almost the place of female divinity. In their skewed theology, they see Mary as a co-redemptress with Jesus, and she intercedes for men from heaven, and that she somehow aids in their salvation. They believe that she's able to specially dispense blessing to those who pray for her. They even believe that she also ascended bodily into heaven, just like Jesus did. And yet the truth of the scriptures is that Mary did not supernaturally ascend into heaven. She did not die on the cross. Mary cannot give favors to those who pray for her. And yet here she's seen, I think, beautifully right here in the midst of the disciples, and yet not in any kind of a place of prominence. And I think sometimes if anyone could grieve in heaven, I so often think it would be Mary as she watches so many sincere followers following false teaching that has exalted her and really taken the focus off of her dear son where it should be. The Bible says that there is one God and what? One mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. And here in this mixed group, we have men, we have women, we have the family of Jesus. And what we see is that they're all united together and they're focused in their adoration of him as they were seeking after him in prayer. They wanted to be close to him. They wanted to be connected with him. It says there in verse 14 again that they all continued with one accord. So we had this notable obedience, and now we have, we have this newfound unity. There, this, there, this is a scene that we've not seen before, isn't it? Because so often when we see the disciples in the Gospels, it seems they're always fighting and they're bickering with one another. But here we see them in total agreement with one another. And things could have been very different at this point, right? We might have expected maybe Jesus' family members are claiming some sort of special position. Maybe they were giving, everybody was giving Peter a bad time, criticizing him over his cowardly denial of the Lord. Maybe Peter was blaming John for even taking him to the high priest's house to begin with. John maybe was firing back, reminding these guys, hey, by the way, at the cross, I was the only one who was actually there. And let's not forget that Jesus asked me to take care of his mother. 
And yet, we don't see any of that stuff. And in fact, nobody was even arguing their classic argument about who was the greatest. So what is it that it changed? They were still the same fallen people. They had the very same failures. And yet now, the resurrected Jesus was alive in each one of our hearts. And that was greater than any of those differences. Remember it was back in this very room during the Last Supper. It says in John chapter 20 that Jesus breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And it was in that act that Jesus imparted the Holy Spirit to these men. It's when the Spirit went from being with them to being in them. It was a work of recreation, not unlike when God breathed life into the first man. Here Jesus is breathing new life into these men, making them into new men. This was the moment that the disciples were born again. And the Spirit now is creating this oneness within this group. It's this supernatural sense of unity, which we're going to see is a key to the work that the Lord Jesus is going to do through them. That expression there, with one accord, we're going to see it all through this book, and it's the key that unlocks the secret of God's blessing. In Psalm 133, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Then it says, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So unity brings life. And there, among these believers, there was this wonderful unity that was binding them together in Christ. And it's that very same kind of unity that we as Christians so desperately need today. There was a, a godly British preacher who once said, I don't necessarily want the walls of separation between different orders of Christians to be destroyed, but only lowered that we might shake hands a little easier over them. And I love that quote because it, you know, there, there will always be differences. And yet those differences don't need to divide us, do they? Because the bond that we share in the spirit should actually be bringing us together to seek the Lord. Notice in verse 14, what we see is that this unity that was inspired by the Spirit also promotes prayer. So it's their sense of oneness of purpose, this unity they have in the Spirit, drove them together to seek the Lord together. So that idea of supplication, there's a sense of desperation and an, an earnestness and a continuing to their prayer. And it's what I think is number three, it's persistent prayer. And isn't it true ordinarily that we would rather do just about anything than pray? If we're honest, right? But it's only when we wait and when we stand before God and when we're desperate and when we're believing and fervent and unhurried and united in our prayer, that's when we start to see that reviving, energizing power of the Spirit of God poured out upon us. And can I say something? There is such a wonderful and practical connection between unity and prayer. Unity promotes prayer and prayer produces unity which empowers more persistent prayer. 
when you pray together with people, what happens is we, we commonly experience this glorious unity that really allows for a greater release of God's blessing. It's the thing that makes ministry and marriages and relationships and intimacy, all of those things are strengthened and flourish when we pray together. So already here we see there's three encouraging things that the disciples are doing that show us that they're on the right track. They're in obedience, there's this wonderful unity and fellowship, and they were in prayer. And they're looking to and they're relying on the Lord. And all of this I think we're going to see is now it's, that's what's going to allow the Lord next to really start to work in and through them in what would be their first Real-life ministry situation, and that's discerning the Lord's will. Look at verse 15, because it says that in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120, and Peter said, now, the, the sense of the language here is after a few days, Right In those days, after a few days that they were there, now they're up to 120. Notice continuing together in one accord in prayer and supplication and unified in the spirit and seeking the Lord and waiting on the promise, this small group of 11 disciples, a couple of brothers, and a few women now had grown, it says, to about 120. Nobody at this point had preached a sermon. Nobody had handed out flyers. Nobody had posted an event to Facebook, right? But all of these people came because they were drawn by the Spirit of God. And it's in the midst of this growing group. Now we see Peter stands up, as we've seen Peter stand up so many times before, haven't we? And he says in verse 16, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. So here we see Peter just kind of continuing on in this natural leadership role that he had among the disciples. We remember that Jesus had pretty much made it clear that Peter was going to be their leader. We also see Peter's name is consistently mentioned first in every list that there is of the apostles, including back there in verse 13. So there's nothing wrong with seeing Peter as the leader of the first group of the apostles, even in the same way that he was kind of the spokesman amongst them during their time with Jesus. Now what is wrong, and what again is taught by parts of the church, what is wrong is this idea that the authority of Peter was supreme. And that he somehow handed down that authority to, in unbroken succession to some line of popes. Peter simply was a first among equals. And he's simply doing here what he already always had been doing. But notice that he's doing it very differently. Because I think in Peter's words here, we show that there's this growing in the wisdom of God. And we see this wisdom coming from Peter, which we had never seen coming from him before. He points out that Judas didn't spoil God's plan, but he actually worked to fulfill it. He says that the scripture had to be fulfilled. And this kind of understanding 
is something that only wise and maturing disciples are able to see, especially in the aftermath of evil. It's that sense where we can look back at even the tragedies in our lives and through, through the wisdom of God, we start to see that the way the Lord used it actually to bring about blessing. So Peter's not only showing that he was a growing student of the scriptures, but notice he also shows that he believed that the scriptures were the inspired word of God. He says that it was who? It was the Holy Spirit who was speaking through David. We know that Paul would later write to Timothy teaching that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. King David declared that the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Peter would later reveal that prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The words of the Bible are God-breathed, each and every one of them. And if you ever get involved in a church, or if you ever become part of a Bible study where the pastor or teacher starts to say stuff like, well, you know, we can't be sure this verse or, or this section of scripture is inspired. If you ever hear something like that, I would encourage you that you will want to keep looking for another church or another Bible study group. Because it's when we start to say, I'll decide which parts of the Bible are inspired and which parts aren't, then suddenly what we've done is we've become the judge of the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to judge us. And isn't it amazing, amen is right, right? <laughs> isn't it amazing which verses we would all cross out if we could cross them out? Sometimes I think it would be a good idea for us to go through our Bibles and spend some time meditating on the verses that we don't have underlined. Because we've got all the promises starred and we've got all the blessings highlighted. And yet verses like all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Well that one is strangely unmarked isn't it? <laughs> and yet what we see here from Peter and from the rest of the disciples. The thing that we need to maintain in our life is there, there was this notable elevating of the word of God believing it to be inspired and sufficient and allowing it to drive and to dictate all of our decision-making, which is exactly what we see next. And yet, not until after, Luke is going to insert this small historical note, right? Adding to what Peter said, speaking of Judas, in verses 18 and 19, Luke says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, the field of blood. So Luke's historical note here in these two verses calls attention to how exactly Judas died, and he gives some additional details that Matthew didn't include. Remember, Matthew's account merely mentioned that Judas hanged himself. But Luke graphically completes this gruesome picture. And when you put the two accounts together, what we understand is that Judas very likely hanged himself, and apparently the rope or the, the branch broke, 
and his body fell some distance down onto the jagged, rocky Israeli soil, and his intestines, now they may have been distended already, they may have been as Judas was gasping for his last breath, but somehow his intestines burst open and gushed out as he hit the ground. Now we mentioned last week that Luke was also a physician, so we can thank him for this detailed medical account of what happened to Judas. But notice he also adds, so known was this, so known was the fate of Judas that the locals kind of colloquially had their own name for the place where it happened. Scripturally, we know it was a field of blood, not just because Judas spilled his own blood there, but because he had purchased the field or the priests had purchased the field, if you will, with the blood money that they had given to Judas, which he returned to them to betray Jesus. So here we have the sad end of Judas Iscariot, at least as far as this life is concerned. And so Luke gives us this detail. It completes all of the historical facts concerning his death, but it also kind of paves the way for what Peter is about to propose next. Because after confirming that Judas had once been part of that number and that the betrayal of Jesus was working to fulfill prophecy, now Peter comes to his main point. In verse 20, he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. So Peter here is quoting from two separate psalms, Psalm 69, verse 25, Psalm 109, verse 8, and Peter makes application of those psalms to the case of Judas to show why it was that God wanted them to choose another disciple to officially replace Judas. Now what I think is encouraging here is that this wasn't the wisdom of man at work this was a principle that was revealed in the scriptures that would now drive their next steps. And for the disciples, this is number six, this was a notable relying on the word of God for the direction that they needed to go. And it's interesting also to me, this is the very first time in the New Testament that we've heard Peter quote from the scriptures. We've heard Peter say an awful lot of things, haven't we? Right? Some of them better than others. So some hits, right? Some misses. But we've yet to hear him quoting scripture, much less applying the scriptures to the situation at hand. So what in the world is going on here? Well, remember that Jesus, remember Luke told us that Jesus, during those 40 days, that he opened their understanding that, he, that they might comprehend the scriptures, and specifically that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So here's Peter now kind of putting all the pieces together. And when he does, he understands that King David, who wrote both these quoted Psalms, that King David also experienced his own tragic betrayal by a friend. You remember the story in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. It was when David was a fugitive from Saul and a trusted man named Doeg 
betrayed him and many innocent people died as a result. And the, the suspicion is that David probably penned these words in reference to that exact experience. Now, King David, of course, is a type in scripture, right, a picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus. And when he was betrayed, David said it was necessary that another would take the place of his betrayer. And so the spirit here is helping Peter to understand that just as David had said that, that the son of David, Jesus, right, whom David often sort of prefigured, that the very same thing would be necessary. You remember that Jesus had told them clearly that there would be 12 apostles on 12 thrones in his coming kingdom. Now what this whole thing tells us is that Peter wasn't some big, dumb fisherman. But Peter was growing in his understanding, right? He knew the scriptures and he was learning to make application of them because of the illumination that the Holy Spirit was giving him. And this is the key for us. It is not enough for us simply to know the Bible. But we need to know how to apply the Bible to our lives. And it's the Spirit of God who helps us to apply the Word of God to whatever the situation is that we're dealing with. Jesus wasn't with them any longer physically, you know, to give them kind of personal direction, and yet they weren't at all without the leading of the Lord because they had prayer, they had the Word of God, and they had the Spirit of God who was already dwelling in them and very clearly starting to work through them even before next chapter when we'll see him come upon them. So there's this notable relying on the word of God, and next we see that they had a desire for the will of God. Right? They wanted what God wanted. So we have this principle of the scriptures Peter quoted. Because of that principle, they're going to now seek to replace Judas, but they're going to do it not because it was what they wanted, but because they believed it was exactly what Jesus wanted. So Peter continues. He's drawing a conclusion from the application. The Psalms had said another should fill Judah's office. And then in verse 21, Peter says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. I love this because the disciples were bold enough to make a decision because they knew from God's word that that's what he wanted. It doesn't say that the disciples, or the, they sensed some special outpouring of the spirit upon them. We're going to see that all throughout the book and that's not going to happen till next chapter. But God hadn't left them without guidance. They knew exactly what to do from the word. And I think that that's an important note for us because even if we do sense that special leading from the Holy Spirit, we still have God's voice permanently established in his word. And anything we think we're hearing from the Spirit will never contradict what God has already written. Amen? 
So here they determined that whoever replaced Judas, they said had to be somebody who'd been with them since John first baptized, who stayed with them during the days of Jesus' ministry, and who saw the risen Jesus resurrected so that they could be a witness of that. And I think that this list is super interesting because we don't see that there's any evidence that these qualifications were discovered either in the scriptures or specifically from the Spirit. But instead, I think what we can conclude is that the disciples were simply using their sanctified common sense. These seem to be logical common sense requirement to the person who would replace Judas as an apostle. And I think we can conclude that their common sense was sanctified because it came as they were in obedience and in fellowship and in prayer and in unity and in the scriptures and as they were seeking out God's will. And can I just say, it would be a great thing if more Christians would exercise a bit more sanctified common sense. Amen. So there's the, they're employing this sanctified common sense for this choice they had to make. It didn't answer everything, but it did sort of narrow things down to a couple options. It says in verse 23 that they proposed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. So of the 120 people that were in attendance that day, there were two men who fit these qualifications. Now, this is the point where you would likely have heard people say that the disciples should never have even been considering a replacement for Judas, that they should have just waited until God would raise up the Apostle Paul to fill this spot. But I disagree. The ministry of Paul was very distinct from that of the Twelve. And there is no suggestion in the scriptures that he was ever intended to replace Judas. Remember, the Twelve were commissioned by Jesus here on earth to preach to Israel. Paul was called into ministry by Christ in glory, and he was sent where? To the Gentiles. Paul himself made it clear that he wasn't to be classified with the Twelves. He clearly considered himself to be an apostle, but to the Corinthians, he said that he was one born out of due time. In all of Paul's writings, we never get the sense that he objected to the selection of another man, and we know Paul didn't pull any punches, right? If he had an ax to grind, he would have ground it. We also see that Luke who we said was Paul's devoted friend and eventually a traveling companion, we will see Luke acknowledge the 12 as the official group and he'll never mention any kind of mistake of leaving Paul out. And in fact, we don't have any sense or spirit of any kind of criticism in all of the Acts account by anyone, including the Holy Spirit, that what the apostles did here was wrong. So the 12 are to have this special place in the coming kingdom, and it's in connection with administrating the affairs of Israel. 
right, seated on the 12 thrones, they will judge the 12 tribes. And yet the Apostle Paul had a very unique ministry and no doubt he will have a very special and a very unique place also in the coming kingdom. The other thing you may have heard the disciples criticized for here because it preaches great, right? You may have heard them criticized that they just offered the Lord two choices and somehow they were forcing the Lord Forcing the Lord to pick one of the two. Okay, could God not have revealed another option if he had one? Of course he could. The Lord always has options that we could never even conceive of. And he has no problem in revealing them to us. I think it is wisdom to prayerfully weigh and to scripturally evaluate our different options. And then present them to the Lord open to the fact that he might very well say, you know what, those all sound great and I can tell you've put some work into this, but how about we go with none of the above? How about we go with option C down here, which you'd never thought of? So the disciples here, they'd been spending time together. They were unified in prayer. They were seeking to obey. They seemed to be of one mind in selecting this successor to Judas. And so now we have narrowed down their choices. Verse 24, it says that they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. So they prayed first before making their selection. And can I just say it was easy for them to pray because they had already been what? Praying. Would it surprise you if I tell you that in nearly every single chapter of the book of Acts, we are going to find a reference to prayer. And this book makes it so very clear that something happens when God's people pray. Which is why Jesus not only taught it, but he modeled it, didn't he? And specifically, he modeled it when he was faced with the very same kind of a situation. We remember when he chose his disciples, in Luke chapter 6, it says that he prayed all night, in fact, seeking guidance from the Father. So here, the disciples, following Jesus' pattern, they pray for wisdom to know who it is that the Lord would add to their number. So this is number nine. They're following the example of Jesus. Right, they're praying for God's guidance before they vote because they wanted to select the man whom they knew God had already chosen. And they somehow sensed, I think, that the exalted Jesus was already working in them and that he was working through them from heaven. Then we're going to read, right? So with their notable obedience and their newfound unity and their persistent prayer, and as they were growing in wisdom from God, and as they were elevating the word of God and relying on the word of God, desiring the will of God, they're employing their sanctified common sense, they're following after the example of Jesus, they're doing all of these things, right, which we should be doing as well. Right? They're, they're, there's prayer and there's more prayer. And then it says in verse 26, and they cast their lots... And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. What? They cast lots? It's like drawing straws, right? Or rolling dice. 
And some people would suggest that probably what they did here is they wrote the two possible names on two different stones and they placed them in some kind of a container and they shook it and whichever stone came out of the container first, that was considered to be the Lord's choice. Now, more than a few people, and maybe you here as well, have questioned this method for choosing one of the two men. And it almost seems that despite all of these wonderful new spiritual steps, that these guys just rolled the dice to come up with the winner. And yet, in doing this, I would actually suggest to you that they were actually demonstrating reliance on God. Because though they weren't yet filled with the Holy Spirit, we know that they will be, but they wanted to choose a method which would make them rely on the Lord. And the method that they chose was the recognized method that had been prescribed by God for all of the Old Testament in the discerning of his will. Right, there was the Urim and the Thummim, right? these little black and white stones. We first read about them way back in Exodus chapter 28. And we see them used by kings and by priests as they were looking to the Lord for direction. If a person wanted to know God's will, they would go to the high priest who had the Urim and the Thummim actually as part of the breastplate. And when the, they would ask a question of the high priest and he would offer up a prayer and then pull out one of the stones... Perhaps, you know, black meant no and white means go, right? Or whatever it is. The idea here is the understanding of what Solomon declares in the Proverbs. In Proverbs 16.33, it says that the lot is cast into the lap, but what? It's every decision is from the Lord. So in casting, this whole casting lots business... The disciples were actually looking to the Lord and allowing him to make the final selection. And it's interesting, this is the very last time in the Bible where we see that lots were used to determine God's will. In a sense, this is that transition point. It's the, the last of the Old Testament economy, and we know that the new economy is about to begin on the day of Pentecost, just a few days from now as the believers were baptized in the Holy Spirit. So we need not cast any lots, because the Spirit now speaks directly to our hearts. And yet here, apparently, the choice of Matthias here by casting lots, it was sanctioned by the Lord because the inspired scriptures in the, you know, we see them referred to as the 12. In Acts chapter 6, in that whole business about the dispute with the Greek widows, it says, then the 12 summoned the multitude of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. It doesn't say that the 11 real apostles, you know, and that extra guy that they threw in there, it doesn't say anything like that. And let me just say this, as we try to apply this to our own experience, though the casting of lots may seem to us like a pretty imperfect way of discerning God's will, it is actually a lot better than the methods that many Christians will use today, each and every day. Relying on emotions, 
relying on circumstances or relying on fleshly desires or feelings. I'm just feeling like the Lord would, you know. At least here with the disciples, they were allowing the Lord to make the decision. They were allowing the Lord to have the final say. And the choice here was this man, Matthias. Now, who in the world was Matthias? Again, those who would argue that it should have been Paul would argue that we never read anything else about anything that Matthias may have done. That they chose him here and then he was never heard from again. And yet to those people, I would say that the fact is, except for Peter and a very brief mention of John and James, none of the original 12 are ever mentioned again by name after this chapter here in Acts. So Matthias was no more of a failure than any of the other apostles. No more a failure than Matthew or Andrew or Thomas or any of the others who were laboring tirelessly and who were martyred for Jesus. No one can fault all the things that the disciples did before they cast lots. And I think that we can see that all of those things put them into a place where God would truly guide their decision. And I think, too, that we would not make many wrong decisions in our lives if we did all the things that we've seen that the disciples did before we make the big decisions in our lives. Right? They obeyed. They were in unity. They were in fellowship. They were in prayer. They were in the scriptures. They wanted to do God's will. They used their sanctified common sense to reason through it. They did what, the, what Jesus had done, and they did everything they could do to rely on God. There's one more quick thing to keep in mind. When we're faced with those big decisions, remember that God loves you. And remember that he's for you. Okay, maybe that was two things. But those two things to keep in mind. God loves you and he's for you. He's not up there throwing this decision in front of you, trying to torture you, waiting for you to make some wrong move so he can rain lightning down on you. So during those times when we're faced with decisions, we can trust and we can rest in the fact that God is working in us and that he wants the best for us. We can just abide in his love, and we can do these things as best as we're able, and then we can just trust him with the outcome. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for all of the direction that it gives us, Lord. We thank you for your spirit who works in us, Lord, who uh, illuminates the word to us, helps us to make application of your word to our situations. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who is wrestling through a big decision. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to remember how deeply you love them, Lord, how much you're concerned for them and how you truly want the best for them, Lord. If, If you're for us, 
who can possibly be against us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we do come up on on decisions for our lives, that we would remember remember the disciples, Lord, that we would do our best to try to do some of these things, Lord, but ultimately that we would just leave this with you and trust, Lord, that you will, um, that you'll speak to us, Lord, as we seek you. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship the Lord.